When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Slate Money is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash slate money and using the promo code slate money. And by Automatic, the connected car adapter that pairs your car to your smartphone. Diagnose engine problems, drive more efficiently, remember where you parked, and call for help after an accident. Save 20% with free shipping and a 45-day return policy when you go to automatic.com slash money. Hello, and welcome to the literary edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I'm joined, as always, by Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. And filling in for Kathy O'Neill, we have an extremely special guest. Alyssa Quart is a writer, journalist, critic. She's the editor of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which is Barbara Ehrenreich's project. And most interestingly, for today's purposes, she is also a poet. And she has a new book of poetry out called Monetized, um, which features a fabulous Marilyn Minter um, photograph on the cover. So you can't miss it in your local bookshop. Um, Welcome, Alyssa. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. So, and, um, and your book is called Monetize, so obviously that's all the excuse that we need to have you on the show and read us poems, and we're going to try and attach a kind of literary bent to everything that is going on in this show. So, so to start us off, I feel that we should really start here with a poem, and no. then we will, and then we will go see where there. we where we go from there. So, Alyssa, w- tell us what you're going to read us. Okay, I'm going to read a poem called "Sinking It All Into." That's about uh, commerce and feeling like you're trapped in a financial universe. Okay. Sinking it all into, they were afraid subtraction was their favorite term. If we were Aravist, we'd have arrived already. Securities speak. They say, take comfort. Money cancels criticism. If she were a he, she'd be indignant by now. Her role at this time, an internal continuous improvement consultant. With one additional purchase, you would have purchase. With ability to purchase, you would be talking by now. That's fantastic. Well done. So I, one of my, when I saw the book, the first thought that came to my mind was monetized has to be the most ironic title for a book of poetry possibly ever. <laughs> like, you, you did get a million dollar <laughs> advance for this book. No, it, exactly. Like so, poetry exists in a world of uh, what one critic called negative economics. Yeah. Um, and part of yeah, monetized was indeed uh, entirely ironic. Title. But but at the same time, poetry, I, I think, especially weirdly, kind of shies away from dealing with money. I mean, it, it, and so he just talk talk about, I guess, the title and just the idea behind the collection a little bit. I, I'd like to hear just a kind of, and, and how it relates to that, to that poem we just heard also. Well, 
Well, the, yeah, they're two separate things. I mean, poets don't write by and large about money. I mean, there are exceptions. There's a book by a poet called Katie Letterer called The Heaven Sent Leaf. Uh, there's a book uh, on corporate personhood by a poet called Jenna Osmond that looked at entirely at the Citizen United decision um, in poetic form. But for the most part, you're going to get a lot of poetry that's about social class, but it doesn't necessarily acknowledge it. <laughs> it's kind of about um, beautiful country houses, and you know, there's a there's a there's a lot of um, fissures within the poetry scene, right? So uh, <laughs> you know, you might get something by a poet called Fred Seidel that's all about his Rolex watches, right? But it's not certainly not that critical about them. How, how, how does Fred Seidel? How do poets manage manage to come into a collection of Rolex watches? I think he I think, has inherited wealth. I was about to say, I think you come into it. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is to say, he's actually quite, he's a he's a really good poet. But now, now yeah. you um, now this poem is actually about the sort of ridiculous worries of the upper middle classes and the and the aspirational one percent. Um, is is that a theme of the whole book? Or I feel like there's a lot of more sort of real money problems in this book as well. Yeah, there's a lot of real money problems. There's um, there's characters in it who are not necessarily me, who are struggling with uh, economic insecurity. Uh, there's also just this feeling of, and this is something that I think you guys sort of get at on the show, just that we're living in this age of a uh, huge wealth gap. And what does this do to people's psychologies, their experience of life? What's it like to walk down the city street where everything's, you know, advertising and uh, meaning has just been kind of distorted by financialization? What's interesting is that we haven't really had, I think at this point, a wave of literature yet dealing with those issues, not not just poetry, but even in, in novel form, really. I mean, I, I can't think, and we were talking a little bit about this before the show, but there hasn't really been a great American class novel or no one's really taken a shot at that in the, you know, in the you know last 10, 15 years and uh, that I think any of us can think of. Or Felix, is, is there a book that comes, a novel that comes to mind even that someone has really tried to capture these class divides? that are now kind of, you know, ravening America. Well, I mean, the one which comes to mind is is more about the UK than about the US, but it's Capital by John Lanchester, who, a uh, previous guest on this show, which is a fantastic book, um, which really runs up and down the classifieds on a single street in South London from the, you know, immigrant who's handing out parking tickets to the millionaire banker. And all, and all of them have money problems, and some of them have old money, and some of them have new money, and, you know, it's... It's a very clear-eyed view of the different um, of the way that class in England has become monetized, as you say, because historically, of course, class was something a little bit different in England. Is there a U.S. version of that novel that I can think of? I'm not sure, Alyssa. I think the strongest writing was in the Gilded Age. I mean, it was in America. It was 1910 and you know, prior. It was you know. Novels like Ed- those by Edith Wharton or uh, Henry James or uh, Dreiser. Uh, so th- these are the great novels about wealth and class, and they're all in the early 20th century. In the first Gilded Age, as opposed to the one yeah, we're now the one living we're now in. And I, you know, I do wonder about that. Um, is it that novelists don't, novelists and poets don't know know how to wrap their arms around it? And it but it's also the sometimes you just can't make it up. I would. I would urge the readers of Slate Money, if they want a good hate read this weekend, to have a look at the New York Times real estate section, where there's a very long story about 
the Manhattan like 12 and 13 year olds who are finding $10 million apartments for their parents to buy and coming home with street easy listings going, look at this apartment. Isn't it wonderful? We should go buy it. And the parents are like, oh, that's a good idea, little Muffy. You're, you know, let's go buy that apartment. And, and when you have articles like that in the New York Times, it's almost impossible to satirize. Yeah. I mean, the real estate listing reads like satirical fiction. Yeah. And I mean, I was just going to say... So uh, we're better off with nonfiction at this point. Like, that, <laughs> like At this point, there's nothing left for the novelists to do. You to might do. as well just record it. That's it. Uh, I mean, one of the things that is left, of course, is to have some sympathetic imagination for people who are struggling on the edges of cities like New York, you know, or, or Los Angeles. And, and I don't... I mean, that's... It's not amusing or um, uh, satirical, but it, it is something that's really worth doing, I think. I do wonder if part of it's also just, um, to, I, this might be a little far field, but it has to do with sort of the professionalization of novelists and sort of the MFA and MFA culture, things like that, where novelists sort of come from, are almost like a, a class now unto themselves that maybe keeps them from doing the social realism that you might have seen in the early 19th century, or I'm sorry, in the early 20th century, something along those lines. Well, yeah. And like, how much money does it take to be an MFA? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you have to look at that too, right? So it's sort of self-selecting then about who the class of writers is going to be. But um, I don't know. Um, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of responses, people saying, oh, what about my novel? Or you, know, yeah. you forgot about, uh, uh, you know, and I, even when I'm speaking now, I'm, I'm th- coming up with counterexamples. But I think it, it is interesting. Um, and one of the things is you think about minimalism, right, which is the 1970s and 80s literary movement. Yeah. And that, there were a lot of working class writers in that period, but yeah. they weren't really talking explicitly about money. They were just writing about lives that were shaped by a lack of money, right? That's true. Like Raymond Carver, Raymond Carver is nothing yeah. but like people on sort of that edge. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, somebody had this great argument that writers of that ilk sometimes would overproduce because they were trying to, you know, match their the labor of their parents' generation and they'd grown up in working class houses where they'd seen uh, people work really hard all the time. And so they were trying to write a lot, which I thought was a kind of cool argument. So uh, your your book, Alyssa, is um, how many pages? How many poems? Oh, how many poems? I think roughly 50 poems. 50 poems. It's, it's good value. It's called Monetized. <laughs> Find it in um, in all good bookstores for the low, low price of... I, I, you can get it on Amazon for roughly $13, $13. depending on how the algorithm is we're smiling. Talk, we're talking poems. less than 50 cents per poem here. Yeah. Which is yeah. how you want to yeah. really... Do, that, that's think how about you poetry. Rate your poetry. <laughs> <laughs> because it's monetized. It's yes, monetized. Exactly. So go buy that book. And now we are going to get excited about mattresses <laughs> because we yes that is right jordan you're looking at me with a dazed and confused expression but it is true that you can get 50 dollars <laughs> off a casper mattress if you go to casper.com slash slate money and use the promo code slate money i'm serious man this is the best mattress you can get it they it's straight from the manufacturer to use so there's none of the crazy markups you get from everyone else that it's memory foam and latex foam all put together it's a really good mattress and they will deliver it to you for free which is always the hard thing about the mattress and you can try it out not for a couple of hours but for a hundred days and if you don't like it you can just send it back that wasn't a look of, of, of confusion, Felix. That was a look of excitement because I, for <laughs> one, have been wanting to replace my mattress for probably a good two or three years for my poor arthritic back. It is time to replace your mattress. It doesn't... You, you can get one of these Casper mattresses for 500 bucks. You don't want that one because that's the twin size and we know that no, you, I need, you're, you're yeah. getting married. Yeah, you can get a king-sized mattress for, get this, 950 bucks. My God. But actually... 
you can get a king size mattress for 900 bucks because of your $50 off coupon, which you can find at casper.com slash slate money. Use the slate money code and you will sleep better. You deserve it. Your fiance deserves it. We all deserve one of these things. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Now, we're going we're gonna to move into Bonfire of the Vanities territory. Now, Bonfire of the Vanities, I want to say, came out in 1987. Yeah, or 85. Or 85. Yeah. During during the sort of the first big Wall Street boom when you had, uh, you know, Gordon Gecko and suspenders and cell phones the size of bricks and that kind of stuff. Um, but what is hard to understand is that the obscene money that we had on Wall Street in the 1980s with the bond traders and um, liars poker and all of that kind of stuff is dwarfed by the amount of money on Wall Street right now because we recently had the latest report that comes out every year on how much money the New York securities industry paid out in bonuses last year. And the answer is $29 billion. Don't, this is, don't over-exaggerate, Felix. It was $28.5 <laughs> billion. Excuse me. You're actually, the funny part about it is that little, that's $500 million. You just rounded it up. <laughs> rounding error. Oh. Rounding error. It's, no, but if you do the math, it's it's 168,000 people working in the Euro- in the securities industry. That's a lot of people. Each one of those, on average, got a bonus of $173,000. That's over and above their actual pay. That's just their bonus. Um, and, of course, you know, this is not evenly distributed. You have a bunch of $10 million bonuses in there and probably some people who are making, you know, having to scrape by on a mere 50000 or so. But in um, but in aggregate, we're talking twenty nine billion dollars. Which, and this is the sort of the the new way of putting this into perspective. Um, if you took if you take all of the money that was earned by every single American earning the federal minimum wage last year, add all of that up and multiply it by two, that's how much those one hundred sixty eight thousand. New York securities industry people earned just in bonuses. Alyssa, what do you make of this? Well, you know, um, at Institute of Policy Studies, Sarah Anderson has did that sort of comparison where uh, it was, the bonus pool uh, last year was roughly double the total earnings of all Americans who work full-time at federal minimum wage. So that, to me, is a pretty shocking uh, parallel, which... Speaking as somebody who edits the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, clearly means that we should be raising the minimum wage at the very least. Um, the minimum wage comparison, it was kind of shocking when I saw that. I do wonder what it would look like if you added all the part-timers who make minimum wage, but maybe at that point you would get almost to equal to all of the Wall Street bonuses. I mean, like, you know, we're still talking a huge amount of money. There are a few other comparisons, just to give you a sense of the magnitude of this cash coming to Wall Street. Uh, these come courtesy of Vox. Um Facebook's revenues in 2014 were 12 billion, 12.4 billion. So we're still talking more than double all of Facebook's revenues. Uh, the entirety of federal uh, heads, uh, head start spending, so that's basically federal preschool spending, is only about six point four billion dollars. So that's the amount of money going to the securities. It so that's I, I guess what. That's... And Facebook revenues are global. Federal spending is national. This is just New York City. If you take the securities industry globally, bonuses are hundreds of billions of dollars. So I have a specific question about bonuses, though, and I'm I'm not really 
the, I'm going to say, I'm not the person to answer. Felix, you probably are. Do you think the fact that this is bonus money, that it's like incentive pay, makes it any worse, that this somehow like distorts what goes on on Wall Street, that this idea that it encourages people to melt down the economy is kind of, is true? Or it's just is this just another way of looking at, at Wall Street pay and saying they make a lot of money? So that's a great question. The fact is that the fact that it comes in a bonus form rather than a set salary form is actually, yes, part of the problem and does probably make the entire economy more fragile. Okay. The reason the banks do it is because their earnings go up and down and they want their employees' earnings to be able to go up and down. As we know, wages are sticky. Yeah. And so it's very hard if you, know, if you get paid $60,000 a year, it's hard next year to go up to your employee and go, oh, by the way, you're only making $50,000 this year. Whereas if you earn $6 million a year in and the overwhelming majority of that is a bonus and then next year your bonus is $5 million, that's much easier to get away with. And so, but what the result is that is the, the people who are making this money um, realize that they're the people who make the money. In the securities industry, you know, it's the classic industry where all of your assets walk out the door every evening, you know. Yeah. So it, without those people, you make no money at all. And they know it. And so they say, well, if you're making a profit, then uh, most of that profit needs to come back to me. Otherwise, I'll go somewhere else. So in a way, it might incentivize even higher pay because so it, 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 it empowers it, yeah. the So it incentivizes higher pay and it also incentivizes higher risk taking because yeah. the more risk you take, the more money you make. And so, and so banking becomes a riskier thing because you have a bunch of people competing with each other to earn the highest amount of money. So that, that, that's really interesting to me. So in order to make their, their pay schemes more flexible, you know, to kind of ride out downturns, the banks end up probably shelling out a lot more than they would otherwise have to in order to keep people who really absolutely know they are top talent. Well, it's not, it's not even that they would otherwise have to. I think that... You know, if any bank attempted to move to a flat pay system, um, they would find all of their employees just streaming out the door. It's actually um, Wall Street employees like the idea of being able to make multi-million dollar bonuses. And unless your flat pay is literally in the seven figures, people are going to look to move to a place where they can earn a seven figure bonus. Do you think this like adds to the sense of just I mean, this must add to the sense of class anxiety that you were talking about in your poem that... You, you don't ever know if you've fully arrived because you're basically getting paid year to year based on how well you did in the last quarter. Or and, last... and I have to come back to the book I mentioned earlier, Capital by John Lanchester. The way the book opens is with this sort of old-fashioned English banker dreaming about his million-pound bonus and how this is going to be the first time his bonus actually reaches a million pounds, and then this is going to be able to change his life, and he's going to be able to pay off his mortgage, and this all these amazingly wonderful things are going to happen. And, and the amount of emotional equity that he has invested, not only in the, the, the fact that he's getting a bonus, but the fact that it has a certain number of figures in it, is it's impossible to overstate. And John Lanchester is not exaggerating here. You, yeah. Your entire self-worth does wind up getting written down on a single rather small piece of paper which gets slipped across the table. And that defines who you are. And it's really funny because I, I, when I knew we were talking about this, I went on the Forbes site and I was looking at what some of the uh, more bullish uh, commentators were saying about this this comparison between minimum wage workers and uh, the the bonus. And this was somebody named John Tamney. He said, 
For the economy to be healthy, we need Wall Street to be in top shape. Yet bonus pool growth in 2014 was slower than it was in 2013 and 12. This is very unfortunate. If we love companies and jobs, then we must also love the capital allocators who make both possible. So I love that. That's wonderful. And it's completely untrue, yeah, of course. Yeah, there's so many fallacies at there work are so there. Many fallacies. Thinking, like, but I the, main, the main fallacy, of course, is that secure, the securities industry, Wall Street, is the middleman. And in most efficient industries, what you do is you compete away the profits of the middleman and you get you know new entrants disrupting such industries. And the cost of moving money from you know investors to investees, as it were, um, is should be just very, very low. And the cost of capital allocation should be very, very low. And in fact, that's not the case. The banks in the middle are extracting absolutely enormous rents for this service, which, you know, and it's, it's, it's going up in price rather than down in price. And it's one of the few industries where people are like, this industry is getting more expensive. And that's a good thing. That doesn't, I don't understand why that makes sense to anyone, but obviously it makes sense to Forbes commenters. Yeah. <laughs> I, be, I will say it does. Um, there, there, as a New Yorker, there is a little part of me that feels torn when I see this because I think, well, you know, more tax revenue. Yeah, no, we're, we're <laughs> like, getting a bunch of tax revenue like, for New York City, and that's great for those of us who live in New York City. Yeah, but like we are, you know, in this respect, New York City is sort of a parasite. Like we are leeching money out of the rest of the, not even just not even just the national economy, but the, the world economy. I mean, we are middlemen that that or the city is full of middlemen and it's not. The city isn't. I mean, to be clear here, we're talking 168,000 people in a city of 8 million. But a disproportionate amount of the money that comes in. It's a disproportionate amount of the money in New York City, but it's not, interestingly, a disproportionate amount of the workforce in New York City. Cities like Charlotte have a much higher percentage, or even Tampa, have much higher percentages of people in the financial financial services industry than New York does. But it does dominate the cash flow yeah. To an astonishing degree, and one of the interesting things actually about that the actual size of um, of the industry, like the number of workers in the industry versus the, the the cultural importance, is it's actually shrunk. I mean, there there were tons of layoffs during the financial crisis, and then they had in two thousand eleven another round of layoffs. So the, while New York on the whole has been adding jobs, so since the crisis, it's at Wall Street is becoming a a physically I mean, and I guess a yeah, I mean, a physically smaller portion of the economy, uh, fewer workers in it. But at the same time, it's it, to some degree, we New York rises and falls with it. Well, I have a question for you guys. Why is our culture in New York so defined by the finance industry? If it is it, like, I don't think it, I've been to Charlotte. It doesn't seem a glittering <laughs> city on the hill. I hate to. Sorry, Char- Charlotte listeners. But yeah. So, so there are two major global financial centers. And New York is one of them. And I my hometown of London is the other. And, you know, New York is in if if you think of the world in a capitalist way, um, as a sort of borderless utopia of free moving capital, then the capital of the world is New York and London. And, you know, a couple of, you know, maybe Hong Kong. But but you know, in that sense, what we're talking about here is really not a New York story. It's not even an American story. It's a global story, and it's a story about global capital. Yeah. I mean, I think also just um, if you have a city where there's a group, uh, even a, a 
group that measures maybe tens of thousands, the people who are making real money. Um, well, that those are people who are going to be paying for the biggest restaurant, the top restaurants who are going to be shelling out for the art. They're going to be kind of essentially funding the, you know, funding the culture. And so they take on more and more cachet. They, they become more important, just like psychologically to the life of the city. Um, even if they really, even if, you know, most of the 8 million of us here don't really, you know, our lives don't actually revolve around them, but New York magazine to some extent does, I guess. And, and yeah, <laughs> and, but it's certainly true. If you, if you go to MoMA or the Metropolitan Museum or, you know, any, Temple of Culture or the New York Public Library, which is now the Schwartzman New York Public Library, you, you will find that the board of directors I'd is full, <laughs> full of financiers. Yeah. You know that that finance basically helps to literally build and shape the world that we New Yorkers live in to a vastly disproportionate extent. It's all different ways of looking at the same phenomenon. We're all um, living in the bonfire. That's, we're all, that's, yeah. we're, we're all, all living in the big bonfire. Anyway, <laughs> we're in the bonfire. One more. Sponsor, and I have to say I'm excited about this one. I um, last last week we were talking about the Apple Watch and all of the amazing things that it can do. You wear it, and suddenly you get this ability to know how much sleep you've been getting, how much exercise you've been getting, how much you've been standing rather than sitting. All of this kind of stuff. But I was talking about this on Twitter with Farhad Manju, and he was like, "You know what? I know when I haven't got enough sleep because I'm tired." <laughs> and I, I was thinking, you know, that's actually not such a bad point. But there's one thing which you don't know whether it's working well or not, and that's your car, right? So if that little check engine light comes on in your car, you don't know whether it means anything, whether it's just a, you know, glitchy computer or whether there's something actually wrong. And it can't talk to you and it doesn't have opposable thumbs and it can't, like, text you. And it's annoying. And what you really want is an Apple Watch for your car because that's where it's going to come in handy because that's when it's going to be able to tell you that you need to know you need to do something right now or you need more gas or whatever it is and now we have an apple watch for the car it's called automatic just spell it normally automatic.com and it logs your trips it tells you how well you're driving it makes sure you know where your car is it has it knows what your parking location is so you don't lose your car um and it saves you money because it helps you drive more efficiently. It can detect crashes. It can call help. It will stay on the line. It's, it does all manner of clever things. It connects to Google Docs and Evernote and Twitter. <laughs> it's amazing. So this is a little gadget which plugs into pretty much any car on the road right now. It's $99.95. You know what? We're going to call it 100 bucks. <laughs> um, don't spoil their market but no I'll tell you what I'll tell you what just because you're awesome people I'll give it to you 20% off how about that 80 bucks if you go to automatic.com slash money I'll give you that 20% off um, it'll ship in two business days you get to try it out 45 day return policy free shipping 80 bucks little Apple watch your car and 80 bucks is cheap even especially by Apple Watch standards. I'm saying, I, I think this is a bargain and you should all run out and buy one. Okay. Jordan. Yes. Felix. What's the date? Today. Well, it's, it's actually, I, I believe this is the beginning of spring. So welcome spring, yeah. all listeners. But when we welcome spring, we also welcome that horrible time of year when we need to... Do our taxes. <laughs> yeah. So why are we talking about taxes on the literary episode? Well, um... Turns out David Foster Wallace's last kind of uncompleted but 
posthumously published novel, The Pale King, was about taxes. Um, it was took, it takes place in a Illinois uh, IRS office in the 1980s. This was his meditation on finding meaning and boredom, finding your ability to um, look at the, these minute, arcane, just mind-numbing details of the tax code, and actually learn to love them and find and find meaning. And on top of that, not so just, wait, this is this is basically the sort of Marina Abramovich approach to doing your taxes. Yes, where instead of like counting grains of rice, you sit there and like. Add up how much money you spent on train tickets last yeah, year. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's looking for the the kind of I think that puts like fractals, the patterns, the sort of nuances and and things you can kind of kind of sink your teeth into. And something as ostensibly boring as the tax code. And this is actually, I mean, there's a, a long line of literature sort of about this. Uh, Tolstoy and uh, Anna Karenina, actually a big part of uh, the book is about kind of finding similar joys in life. There's a line about finding uh, gold and sand, I believe, in, in your daily life. And it was a sort of similar thing he was talking so, about. Alyssa, uh, do, you, do you find doing your taxes to be a transcendentally uplifting thing to do? <laughs> well, you'd, you'd probably have to add, like ask my husband because... <laughs> Is he the tax tax guy? guy? You you leave the joys of taxes for. I do, but you know, I keep asserting that before I met him, I did my own taxes, which is the truth. But so my question is, my you know, if you're not the kind of person who spends their life who decides they want to be like a tax lawyer, which I know a few, and they really actually there are people who sincerely love this stuff. Um, But if you're not Felix, how how should one do their taxes? Like, what is the best way for 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 us, our, our, those of us who don't have this is, David Foster this is, Wallace's? This is a personal finance question, which I loathe every year because taxes. There are two things about personal finance which, a little bit like Alyssa, I outsource to my spouse. Um, one of them is anything to do with healthcare, and the other one is anything to do with taxes. And my wife spends an absolutely enormous amount of time every year, once a year, gathering up Amex statements and tapping away on a little pocket calculator and putting this whole package of stuff together to send our accountant who then, you know, does more tapping away and whizzing and wearing. And then at some point, we have to write a check or a check comes to us. And it's all this kind of black box to me. Um, My wife, you know, used to be a bookkeeper and understands this stuff much better than I do. Do I think this is the most efficient and most sensible way of doing it? Well, quite clearly, the most efficient and most sensible way of doing it would be for the government to simply send everyone a pre-filled out tax return um, with all of the information that the government already knows about how much you're paid because it's because your employer reports this stuff to the IRS. And then all you need to do is sign your name at the bottom of the tax return and send it back. And then it's automatically done. That's the easy way to do it, right? Yeah, that, well, that's this has been an idea kicking around for a while. And California tried a version of this, which there have been arguments about how successful it has or hasn't been. But it's this thing called, you know, ready file. You know, like, and, and this is like the great irony. The government knows all this stuff because they have to audit us. Like they have this information and, I, you know, they just need to write it down and send it to you uh, if you if you just want to have your tax forms pre-filled out. Um, unfortunately, you know, whether or not this experiment would work, it's probably never going to get off the ground thanks to the lobbying of Intuit and TurboTax, which have gone to great, great, great lengths 
to just stop this idea dead in its tracks. And, and they, they've gone so far as to do like astroturfing campaigns where they were literally getting black leaders. Um, well, they were literally getting black leaders to write letters to congressmen saying this is going to hurt the poor because this is going to end free tax filing services for them. No one ever said that was going to happen, by the way. And the way they were doing this was they were sending lobbyists to talk to these leaders without telling them they were lobbyists. I mean, this is this is the kind of stuff that in the like, turbo tax, you know, big tax filing was, was pulling in order to... Am, am I the only person who can't hear the name TurboTax without automatically thinking of Tim Geithner? What? <laughs> Do you remember during Tim Geithner's oh, confirmation yeah, no, hearings? That, yeah, I messed up on TurboTax. That, when I was, yeah, he, yeah when, he was, when he was being employed by the IMF and the IMF doesn't withhold taxes because it's tax-free, but if you're an American citizen, you still have to pay taxes, and there was all of this complication, and he, he blamed TurboTax. Well, he tried... Well, it's not clear that he blamed TurboTax, but TurboTax was definitely involved. It was how he put his taxes together. Um, you know, clearly, if even Tim Geithner can mess up this stuff, there has to be a better way. So, I actually, so you write about, or, you know, you edit the you know, economic hardship um, report. So, I, I'm wondering about your thoughts. Like, is tax day a nightmare for people who are kind of on the edge, or is it something that they manage to handle pretty well because they've got services? Um, I I can just speak more generally, which yeah, is sure. that I've been reporting on this and I've been assigning pieces on this on people who are uh, working class and working poor, et cetera, and all kinds of systems uh, are rigged against them, from the education system to the tax code. And it just... You need to have, like they call it education circles, accumulated advantage, the kind of advantage that we have where we would know where to go. We'd know what services to use. Yeah. We would understand how to get a write-off or we would understand how to learn more. And yeah, I mean, a lot of working poor people in this country don't have those services. And they're, I mean, one thing I, I just don't understand is why there isn't uh, free, available, easily accessible counseling. Well, for- there is. Okay, there's this thing called VITA, mm-hmm. Volunteer Income Tax Assistance. And... In most cities now, you know, can you get it in the absolute middle of nowhere in Nebraska? I don't know. But certainly in cities like New York and other cities where there are a lot of poor people, it's quite easy to find a VITA site. And find if you earn oh, less useful. than a certain amount of it. money, yeah. you can just go there with your documentation of how much you earn and they will help you fill out your forms and get your tax refund. The one thing which is worth noting is that um, for the overwhelming majority of poor people um, and indeed middle class people, doing taxes is a cash flow positive thing to do. You actually get yeah. money back at the end of it. It's not some horrible thing which is going to cost you money. It's, it's something which you're going to get a refund. If you're not scared of taxes, you can get cash flow from them. It's a good thing for Generally, I mean, it's a good thing. Poor people don't actually pay a lot no. in income taxes. They pay mostly in payroll sa- sales right. taxes. Yeah. So, you know, that's gone. But you don't need to itemize sales taxes on your receipts. It's just income taxes and you get refunds and stuff. It's a good thing, really. Yeah, I, I guess this is the thing to me about it is we do have this Baroque system of, you know, incentives, you know, kind of buried in the tax code where you do have to have someone to come and, you know, assist you with it. And we have to provide assistance to the poor. And I just, I, you know, this isn't my subject area of expertise. It just, it all strikes me as sort of a Rube Goldberg device. And I guess that's why I wonder how many people just kind of don't manage to properly it, take advantage it is, of it. It is true that the U.S. tax code is horrendously complex. But yeah. the fact is that for most people on like five figure salaries, frankly, it isn't. 
Yeah. You know, if you're not itemizing deduct deductions and outside the big urban centers, most people do not itemize deductions. There's actually very little complexity. Your basic 1040 EZ is not that hard to fill out. And, and that's where it comes back to that idea that... Um uh, that we'd be better off possibly if the government just did it for us. I think some estimates suggest that maybe 40% of taxpayers who really do have these incredibly um, just, you know, simple, simple returns could essentially just sign their name on whatever the government gives them based on that sort of information that you know, yep. Felix is mentioning. Listen, listen. Yeah, I just was going to say, you know, uh, I was looking into this before I came here. I was like, or I just had this thought, are military uniforms tax deductible? And, and <laughs> no, I think this is important. No, this no, 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 no. Like Wait, do people do people have to pay for their own military uniforms? I thought they were. They are them not. The they are not deductible. No, you have to buy. Them. Except when regulations prohibit you from wearing uniforms off duty. In this case, you can deduct the unreimbursed cost and expense of upkeep of the uniforms. Oh, so it's not so much the cost of the uniform, but the cost of like laundering the uniform. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Huh. I think you do have to buy your own. You also, yeah, yeah. You, you military dress uniforms, utility uniforms that you cannot wear off duty. Um. So I thought that was interesting because uh, this seems like a sort of bedrock American, uh, you know, <laughs> patriotic profession. I, 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 do, I do suspect that the um, the Venn diagram overlap between, you know, people who buy their own military uniform on the one hand and people who itemize deductions on their taxes on the other hand is pretty tiny. Yeah, but the <laughs> symbolic value, Felix, you're missing symbolic. the symbolic value. Back to the which, symbolic. Yeah, like back to the poetry of, of our tax code, which is what David Foster Wallace would also be interested in, just it, to bring it, it full circle. Full circle. Jordan, yeah, do you have a number this week? I do have a number. Um, it's $9. Uh, Target. Target is raising its minimum wage $9 by next month. Wait, wait. So, it's raising it by or two? Two. Sorry, did I say by? My <laughs> God, if only. No. Uh, it's raising it to $9 by next month um, to, of course, catch up with Walmart. Um, and I'm not bringing, you know, we've been talking about this issue of the minimum wage, companies' wages, raising wages for a while now. I just want to kind of reflect for a moment on Target itself as a company, because what I find amazing is that for several years, they managed to put this very high fashion face on low-wage retail, the same kind of low-wage retail that Walmart essentially is, just selling slightly different product lines. Um, and I think it's just very telling that now, all of a sudden, they are catching up to Walmart. Um, it just I think it says a lot about the power of their marketing for a certain period of, like I would say, the aughts that they managed to kind of pull that feed off. On, on which note, I will say... Michael Graves, R.I.P. Oh, yeah, R.I.P. And that amazing kettle, that's a perfect example of what uh, Target, or they used to call Target, to, to make fun of the French uh, aspirations of Target as an upscale company. Ha ha. Um, Michael Graves sold his line of, like, I guess, reasonably priced design it was wear there. Yeah, he, he started designing that, that famous kettle with the whistling bird and a bunch of other, some, some really nice stuff for Target. I I'm, I can't quite remember if he started designing for Alessi or whether Target was his first like non-architecture. I think Alessi, yeah. Um, commission, but it made him a household, literally like a household name. It, he was in households across America, and people really loved that kind of design. And between them, Target and Michael Graves brought very high design to the masses in a pretty unprecedented kind of way. So, well done, um, Target, for that, and well done target for finally raising your minimum wage to catch up with walmart, walmart i guess <laughs> maybe well done that's so that sounds like the soft bigotry of low expectations <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good I'm going to. Alyssa, what's your number uh 15 
15. Uh, which is what the minimum wage should be. <laughs> <laughs> That's an easy one. Um, we, we will come back probably in a future episode, or maybe we even covered this in the past episode. I can't remember can for the, the reasons why. Um, I think know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's basically a whopping great big economic stimulus for the entire country. Um, hmm. my, maybe we will have to address this again, because I don't know if I entirely agree, but keep going. Anyway. My, um, my number is $1.2 million, which is the amount that a guy called Emad Torfilis, which is the amount that a guy called Emad Torfilis, um, invested in a wine company run by this other chap called Robert Dahl. And Emad Torfilis was, a you know, he was on the edges of Silicon Valley. He was in Los Gatos. He worked in finance, and he wanted the glamour of Napa. And he met this guy called Robert Dahl, who talked a great game and who borrowed $1.2 million off him, including, it has to be said, $800,000 of which he paid in cash in a red Adidas bag, which should possibly have been a tip-off that something wasn't entirely right. Um, as you might expect, this didn't all go particularly well. And eventually, Mr. Torfalis went to confront Mr. Dahl and try and work out what exactly was going to go on. This meeting did not go well. Um, this meeting ended with Robert Dahl chasing Emma Torfalis around his vineyard, <laughs> don't laugh, um, shooting... Oh. A semi-automatic pistol at him out of his SUV and eventually killing him and then killing himself, which is oh. all of the lesson that we need to know about trying to make, um, you know, angel investments in fast-talking guys, like, you know, weird projects. Put it in index funds, people. <laughs> okay, I'm going to laugh at that. You will, you will, you you know. I feel like there's a wine can, pun in here somewhere. Uh, investing can get you killed. not properly aged or. Uh, Alyssa, could you, I, I, before we close out, uh, could you give us another poem? Yes, so, more poems. And actually, can I, can, I, can I request a specific one? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Is this going to be the this millennial one? This is, so this this is going is, out to Jordan. Yeah, so this is um, because a running, this is Spring Breaks. That's the one I was hoping you'd read. And because a running theme on this show has been Felix mocking me for being, you know, Having having the youth and beauty he misses. Uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, th- this has some of the better. This has some of the better digs at the millennial generation I've read in a while. It's it's. It, I I even chuckled at some of the lines. So I, I was hoping you would read that one. To oh, close thank off. you. Sure. Spring breaks. This beach, an old song. Hunters look for fortunes under sandy buds. Days are day glow. Cars are topless. See your face in the mirrored yacht floor? Dipsomaniac mother's mouth ring my bell, injured on the shore. Sands holding our armpit skull tattoos, rocking little bods, our shaved chest zoo, as poolside aging cling to dwindling heat. Our kids, thick flesh pelts twice our size. All our sport shirts point to always sitting still. Particles fried, bored, alive. Can we refuse ourselves? Millennial bland angels tectonically tapping our sweat-free abalone blouses, signatured water. Neon-hearted, let us be shielded here where the knots end, unnoticed, where yachts hope shiningly unbought, all owners at risk, all trying to float. 
This beach's undimpled flesh exists for death cult ex-marines, for illustrated boyfriends, for ruin. It's waiting for something to rise again. You will only reproduce your life. Whoa. Thank you, Alyssa. I feel like this is by far the most sort of intense and highbrow <laughs> episode of Slate Money that there will ever be. Um, I all, all that remains, <laughs> I think, now There's is for nothing, me to nothing, thank nothing. you for coming and for reading that. It's going to take me a while to, to ingest all of that. Yeah. Um, and thank all of you for, for listening to Slate Money and to ask you to subscribe to the show. I can't promise more poems of that caliber, but we'll see what we can muster. Maybe I'll go and break out some of my high school poems. <laughs> I think George, just, you really should. Just so that everyone can see, get a sense of how awesome I was at 16. Anyway. That's... So so do do send in your high school poetry to slatemoney at slate.com. We promise not to publish it or to read it on air unless it's actually good. Um, but send us lots of other stuff as well. Jordan has a special thanks to everyone who's been sending him honeymoon tips no, about the about Portugal. I did not. I, you guys have the best like response rate of I mean you're I just want to say everyone's awesome who listens to the show thank you for the vacation tips much appreciated I'm not going to go down a whole list of names like Felix would because A I couldn't do it the same aplomb that he does but also just because it would take a long time anyway thank you to everybody who sent in an email um, and thank you to Audrey Quinn as well the fabulous producer today and also Joel Meyer the managing producer and Andy Bowers the executive producer so check us out on iTunes.com slash Panoply, which is where you will find all of the Panoply shows, including this one and lots of other awesome ones. Thank you again.